before I pray for the sermon and are listening to it and uh, say a few words about the Compromands, I want to ask a question just to get us thinking. What is the difference between a waiter and a coach? The primary difference is their audience. A waiter gives choices. Here are the things we're serving tonight. Maybe hands out a menu, and you get to choose what part of it you're interested in and what part you're not interested in. On the other hand, when a coach gives instructions before a game or is telling players uh, the plays they're going to do, uh, they need to pay attention. If you got the roles reversed, you'd have a big problem. If a waiter came up to you and told you what you were having for dinner, or a coach said, well, here are the plays, you can do what you want, you'd have a hard time. Why do I ask that question? Because I think most of us, when we come to hear a sermon, put ourselves in the position of customers, not players. We're not waiting to hear the Lord give instructions. We're listening to choices. Maybe I'll do that, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll try that, maybe I won't. Our hearts have to be in the right place if we really expect God to speak to us through his word. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, our heart's desire is that we hear from you through your Holy Spirit, that you would instruct us, that you would change the way we are playing out our lives, that we would live for you and not for ourselves. We're radically aware that like the disciples at the feeding of the 5,000, we do not have enough. We need your provision. We need your Holy Spirit. So guide us now as we open your word to consider your truth, that we may be changed for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a joyful day. Uh, I met with some of the confirmands last night. I'm very excited to be here for that opportunity as we pray for God by his Holy Spirit to touch them, fill them, prepare them for the rest of their lives uh, in the next stage of ministry uh, that he has for them. And I'd encourage you while I'm praying for them and laying hands on them that you be praying for them uh, as well. I want to start with a true story, a story of a student named Robert in a special education class and the teacher is someone I know. And she played this game with, with Robert, a true-false game. Make a statement, and then Robert would identify it as true or false. So she began, a banana is yellow. Robert said, true. She said, a dog says meow. Robert said, false. Then she said, a man can eat breakfast alone. And Robert said, false. She was thinking, maybe he's not entirely tracking with me here. So she, she said it again. A man, Robert, a man can eat breakfast alone. And again, he said false. So she thought, maybe I just need to play it out a little bit. Man wakes up in the morning, he goes down to the kitchen, he gets a bowl, he pours cereal into the bowl, he puts milk in the bowl, he sits down at the table, a man can eat breakfast alone. And again, he said false. And finally she said, Robert, why are you saying that? And he said, because no one should ever eat alone. At the heart of the gospel is God's desire to be with us, that we not be alone. 
and that we be with each other. So what I want to talk about this morning is withness. You've heard of Christian witness. I want to talk about Christian withness. It begins with what the Lord has done for us. We know that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us, the God who came to be with us, the God who showed up. And he's the God who wants us to love the people we're with. For the reality is, to echo an old Stephen Still song, you really do love the one you're with. I want us to note the word with in the Ephesians passage today. If you've got a Bible handy, please turn to Ephesians 2, beginning at the fourth verse. It's a remarkable passage. It's the heart of the gospel. It tells us God's motives and tells us our status. Ephesians 2, starting the fourth verse. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, there are the motives, mercy and love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even though we were spiritually gone because of our sin. He made us alive together, here's the word, with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is the God who wants to be with us. He wants us to be with him. That's the very heart of the gospel. Now, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve God wanting to be with us at all. And so he says, verse 8, for by grace, God's mercy, kindness displayed to people who do not deserve it. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works. You can't be good enough for God so that no one can boast. It's not up to us. He's the God who came to us in Christ out of grace. But we need to understand that we are hardwired for relationships. We were made to be with God and with others. So I want to talk about withness for a while. Let me focus on ways to spend our time so that we can point others to be with Jesus. The former Surgeon General was a man named Vivek Murthy, and he wrote about what he calls the loneliness epidemic in this country. He said, we live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. Rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. Or to put it another way, just being technologically connected is not to be fully connected. So think of Jesus reaching out to isolated, lonely people, corrupt tax collectors, women with immoral lifestyles, lepers, the paralyzed, widows. He was surrounded by lonely people, as are we, even more so. Mother Teresa said, and I'm quoting, the greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. 
We can cure physical diseases with medicine, she went on to say, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There is a hunger for love as there is a hunger for God, she said. What would happen if you all decided that a key part of your primary mission would be to take the time to be with lonely people, including the lonely among you? Let me just give you a statistic that I'm still thinking about. Today, over 50% of American adults are single. In 1950, in contrast, that number was about 22%. We are surrounded by loneliness. Now, Jesus understands isolation and loneliness. He was misunderstood by his disciples. He was even abandoned by them in death. He knew the greatest loneliness possible. If we'd seen Jesus hanging on the cross, he would have been naked to the human eye. But before God the Father, he was covered with our sin. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the verse goes on to say, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus knew loneliness. He went to the cross so that in our loneliness we could be brought into relationship with God. He took our sin upon himself. Revelation 3.20 is a familiar verse probably to some of you. As I thought about the death of Billy Graham a couple of weeks ago, this was one he used a lot. But listen again to the word with. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. Eating together in a Middle Eastern culture is the sign of intimacy, of being a part of family together. And Jesus is saying, I want to have that kind of relationship with each of you. But he also wants to have that kind of relationship with everyone we're running into in the course of our lives. If you haven't opened the door to let Jesus in, let him in. He wants to take over your life as Lord, but he has a good plan for it. And he wants to save you from your sins, for he died for them. But there are others who need to know that. But because Jesus loves us and is with us, we can spend the time he has given us to be with the lonely people around us. I read a book last year that's still in... Uh, infecting my life uh, called Surprise the World. Some of you may know it. I strongly recommend it. The subtitle tells you the purpose. It says, Five Habits of Highly Missional People. And one of those habits is eat. Hey, I can do that. <laughs> but what he means is to eat with others. Either invite them into your home or go out to eat with them because there's something about eating together that brings a greater sense of relationship. That's why he uses the imagery in Revelation. Last summer, I was on sabbatical, and um, part of my time I spent in Texas at a ministry there, uh, that headquarters of a ministry there, getting to know the people, getting to know their mission, which is to re bring the gospel mostly into Asia, remarkable things they're doing. They, they have a, a sort of complex there with a number of houses, about 80 or 100 houses for their staff, which is good sized. And they gave me my own house. It wasn't a big house, 
but it was big enough for me. Now, I have to tell you, it was a bit of a retreat, so I knew I would be alone for a good bit of the time. But there was something about going to that house alone among people I didn't know that made the loneliness greater. And on the other hand, when they invited me to a meal in their homes, which happened pretty much every day I was there, I was there for at least a lunch or a dinner, that meant all the more to me. Several of you open that empty door, every, uh, door to an empty house every day or an empty apartment. Several, all of us are surrounded by people who are lonely. So if the greatest poverty of the West is loneliness, according to Mother Teresa, what can we do to live with others? Well, one thing that's happening is you're moving. At least you're hoping to move. <laughs> Anybody who's been through a closing knows that it isn't closed till it's closed, right? No, I know you're moving. Now, Honestly, you don't need to move for just this congregation's sake. You could stay here. You've got enough space. God is not giving you a different space and a larger space so that you would just feel more comfortable. He's giving it so that you can reach out to others. I love that line in the Old Testament. Read that story. It's re remarkable. On one hand, God punishes people because they've abandoned him. He sends them into exile, and then he changes uh, empires from Babylonian to Persian so that the new Persian king reverses things and says, now you can go home. I'm going to help you build a temple. Now, we think that's cool. That's a pagan king who has somehow heard from God that these are the people that he's to be helping build a worship place for the true God. That's a remarkable story. And then it has that great line. If you're among those people, he says, if you're one of them, let him go up. Let, go up. Go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always up, if you look in the Old Testament. Uh, it's not up from the south or up from the west. It's up from everywhere because it's a mountain. It's the mountain of God. Let him go up, says this man. Well, may the Lord help you go up to, the, to your new home. Now, moving's hard. It's my least favorite indoor sport. <laughs> and there's always a problem to move. You don't know that you have expectations of the new space until you get in it. And the problem is that not all of your expectations are going to match. I can promise you that. I remember as we were about to move Redeemer into a new space, and I was no longer the rector, I was the bishop, uh, and somebody came to me with carpet samples, to asking me which they should have, uh, and he was making a strong case that it should be red, which is, not, it is a traditional color for some churches, and he showed me all pictures of churches that had red carpets, just so I get the point. <laughs> and he was going to be very disappointed if they didn't get a red carpet because he had an expectation that that's the way a church should be. You're going to have some of those feelings. No matter how you fix things up over there, uh, no matter what you do, there'll be part of you that says, yeah, but. But you've you got to switch your mind from the building. Because Paul tells us that we are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in us. It's not that the 
building won't be perfect. It won't be. It's that you're the temple, and you're not perfect. But you're called to love each other in your new home. But that new home is not just for you. So instead of focusing on the space, think about what could you do in, your, in the new place to love others better? Make coffee, welcome newcomers, help in the nursery, clean up. Think of it as a reset button for your life together, but for your individual lives. When you move over there, maybe you're going to do things differently than you've done them here. Maybe you should be looking for responsibilities you've never tried before. Now the temptation once you move, and you know this if you've ever moved at home, it's once you get there, it's just to relax. That would be the wrong thing to do. I was very struck watching the Olympics of the speed skaters. I mean, they're going around the ice as fast as I can imagine anybody going on ice without killing themselves. And, and then at the end of the race, there's a burst of speed. And I'm thinking, where did you get that? I want to suggest that once you're there, you need a burst of energy. Not a time to relax, it's a time to reach out, to get the word out. Because there are people who are lonely, who need a church family. Now here's the problem. Nowadays, the unchurched usually don't come to a church when they're invited. Unless they're invited somewhere else first. Unless they're invited into your home or invited out to a meal and you've spent some time with them at coffee. In other words, why should they trust you about your church if they don't know you? And if they're unchurched, they're not looking for a church. What's happened in our culture, and I could take a long time talking about this, but we have to get this straight. What's happened in our culture is that we came from countries that everybody was in a population where they went to church, be it Roman Catholic countries or Reformation countries. You might not know this, but in Geneva, during the time of Calvin, you were fined if you didn't go to church. And that was the background that Americans came out of, by and large. And so when I... Most of my ministry, all we had to figure out is how to open the door and how to give a, a, a presentation of the church that made people feel comfortable because they were already looking for a place to land. We're not there anymore. We need to give them some sense that they would be safe with us, that we would care about them. And just handing out invitations, you might hit some Christians along the way who are looking for church, nothing wrong with doing that, but you're not going to grow that way in any significant way. You need to think about who is lonely that you can be with. Think of a lonely person in your life. Can they be with you when you go shopping or head to the movies or watch a ball game on TV or when you eat in your home? Can you go with them to doctor's appointments or be their ride home if they need one? I became a Christian because a Christian couple invited me over and over to be with them. We watched the original Mission Impossible, which incidentally for the younger generation was a TV show. <laughs> they played tennis with me. I ate in their home and they took me out to dinner. This took months. That was a hard case. That's part of their trips. I could sense Jesus in them even though I did not know him yet, really. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those 
who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now, that's a remarkable statement. On one hand, it's an image of incense going up to God, the aroma of Christ to God. But it's also an, it, he's also saying that, that there's something about us that people notice. They can sense Christ in us. They, this is pushing a little far, but they can sniff Christ in us. They have a sense that there's something different about us. But they have to be around us to sense that. And we look at ourselves and say, we're a mess. How would anybody see Jesus in me? Do you know the mere fact that you raise that question makes you different than the non-Christians around you? Because you recognize that you're still a work in progress. And they sense that. And there's a humility there that they sense. My daughter at college said, what marked the Christians among the non-Christians is that the Christians apologized. They did it naturally. But the non-Christians were amazed. They just didn't, they always had excuses. And they began to say, why are they apologizing to me? I think our sharing the gospel would change radically if we believe that Jesus could sense Jesus in us, if, if people could sense that Jesus was in us. But they have to be with us for that to happen. Now, we're never alone. We are with the Father and the Son, as we just read in Ephesians. The Spirit empowers us. And Jesus has called us to be with him as we reach out to others. So pray for someone for you to be with. I'll warn you, if you pray that prayer, he will answer it. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul concludes by saying, We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or to put it another way, God has a game plan if we have ears to listen. God has ways for you to be with others. He will bring them into your lives if you ask him to bring them into your lives. Now, I have to tell you, they won't be the people you expect. One of the illusions that we have as Americans is that our time is our own. But if we're Christ's, our time is not our own. Our time is his because our lives are his and our lives are measured in time. There will be interruptions they will feel like nothing but interruptions. That's how you get to be with people, by letting them interrupt you and beginning to meet their needs. Good works require time spent sacrificially. But the risen Lord Jesus never asked us to do something alone or to do it in our own strength. The disciples could not have fed the 5,000 alone, but it was a good work that God had prepared for them to walk in. And through Jesus, they did the miraculous. And as we give our lives to him, minute by minute, day by day, by loving him and the neighbors he's called us to be with, he, doesn't, he wants us to be with people who are alone, who are especially alone from him. He doesn't want anyone to eat alone or live a life alone. Robert was right. No one should eat alone. So ask the Lord to show you who you can be with in your new church home, in your own homes, and get ready. He'll answer that prayer. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Take a moment and just silently before the Lord, ask him to bring somebody into your life 
who needs to know him, needs to know his love, and needs to know your love. And if there's already somebody in that category, pray for strength, perseverance, and care for them. Just ask the Lord to work a good work in you. Father, we let go of time. It's not ours, it's yours. We give you permission to interrupt us with the needs of others, to bring people into our life who are uncomfortable, needy, confused, lonely. We ask you to somehow show them Christ in us. Help us to invite people into our lives, just as you've invited us to be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.